Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy. It is not a gender. So it finally happened. It was IFE week. Yeah. We went to a film festival. Very cool. Very cool. It's like the most I've ever gone to film fest. And this year... I was really excited for this year because 2022 has just been such a banger uh, for movies and art in general, but especially movies. And there was a lot we were really excited for. It's a marathon. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Big time. Because you're like, there were two times that we went to two movies in a row. Um, but it's really fun. That wasn't the only exciting thing about it. We're obviously going to talk about the movies we watched at IFE. But we also... As mentioned last week, got to moderate a director panel for IFE, which was really cool. So cool. I've ne- I I feel so legit. IFE has just <laughs> legitimized us so much. Yeah. I'm like, maybe somebody will recognize us and be like, oh, those are the people who moderated that really cool discussion. And that kind of did happen a little bit. <laughs> One, oh, per- yeah. One person did <laughs> recognize us. And yeah. said, Good job on that Q&A. This is true. Yeah. So basically famous. I did want to give a shout out, though, to um, our friends, our really close friends. A bunch of them came to see the film Butterfly in the Sky, largely because we were moderating the discussion after. And I really can't express how loved it made me feel to to look out in the audience and see all these people who are our favorite people, who are our chosen family be out in the audience Mm -hmm. so i'm just gonna give a little shout out in alphabetical order (laughs) to alex ashley chase jordan max sanford and tabitha um for being really lovely friends we love you and we're very very grateful for your support in everything that we do and for your friendship and also a big thank you to one of our creative mentors but especially my creative mentor mark who came out to support us as well um felt really 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 special to have people come out and support us in that way um so hopefully it's not the last time yeah (laughs) thank you so much and congrats to you babe i'm really proud of us i think we shook hands a lot this week we We did (laughs) we'd like turn to each other and be like wow yeah good job yeah this is a that's the that's the one way we can express our like extreme gratitude to each other (laughs) (laughs) we just turn to each other and shake hands another cool thing that happened this week before we start talking about movies is um Special shout out to Jordan, one of uh, my closest friends, one of our closest friends, who made us some like DIY merch, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. So she made some decals, like sticker style decals of our logo in black that look great on a water bottle. Mm -hmm. Could look great on a car if you were really that interested on a bumper. (laughs) Um, Could look great on a laptop. Could look great on a wallet. She also made some larger iron-ons of our logo in both white and black that um, could go on a tote bag or a shirt or anything like that. So if you're somebody that thinks our logo looks cool, which it does, and you're interested in a decal or an iron-on or both, just send us a little DM and we will mail you one mm-hmm. for no charge. No With charge. a little note. Yeah. Well, thank you. So if you or if you know us um, or uh, live in Edmonton, we also will find a way to get it to you easier as well. But yeah, if you if you would like a decal or an iron on or both um, or 
one of every color. So you want three things. Just send us a little DM at baddad.raddad and we'll get that to you. And Hell thank yeah. you, Jordan, for making those. Yeah. They look slick AF. Yeah. And it's just like, it just has me thinking of all the merch stuff that we've talked about on and off the show. And I just, I would, it's, it's going to happen. We're going to go full hog on putting merch together one day. My students don't listen to our show very often, but they do like to ask if we have merch. Yeah. One day. Yeah. This is a start. Yeah. Great start. Great start. All right, let's talk about the movies because yeah. this is a really whoo exciting and exciting week that runs the emotional gamut. So mm-hmm. let's get started. All right. So we kicked off IFE week with a screening of the film Triangle of Sadness. It's a 2022 comedy slash drama. It uh, was directed and written by Ruben Ostland. And it stars Tobias Thorwood as Lewis, Harris Dick- Dickinson as Carl, the late Charles Charl B. Dean as Yaya, um, Vicky Berlin as Paula, Zlatko Burick as Dimitri, and Woody Harrelson as the captain. So a synopsis for this one are, is models Carl and Yaya are invited for a luxury cruise with a rogues gallery of super rich passengers. At first, all appears Instagrammable until it isn't. I love that synopsis. Um, so yeah, this was our first night at IFE. Uh, this film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, so there's a lot of buzz and hype that's kind of backing up this movie. And after watching the trailer and hearing some of that buzz, we were very excited to see it. And we just heard that it was absolutely wild. So what did you think of Triangle of Sadness? Yeah, I mean, it is bananas. Mm-hmm. so wild so funny mm-hmm. like I there's a handful of movies we've seen in the theater where the experience of the theater elevated seeing the movie and this would be one of them yeah 100%. I think that, where, where it wasn't like a interactive screening of the room like this was just mm-hmm. a movie yeah right and the, the audience was so into it yeah. I will say about IFE in general, what respectful audiences. Like oh, everyone yeah. who's there is there to see film. We saw five movies at IFE and every audience was perfect. Well, and uh, there was even one instance where like somebody was on their phone and somebody very quickly shut that down. Get off your phone. This <laughs> <laughs> is so stir. Get off your phone. Um, but for this one, so if you've seen the trailer... And I do think it's worth giving a bit of a warning if you haven't and you're interested in the movie. There is a lot of puke. <laughs> yeah. A lot of puke. It puts Stand By Me to shame. I remember thinking when we rewatched Stand By Me that it was going to be really gross because I remember being grossed out by it as a kid. But then that scene in Stand By Me is um is very goofy and like doesn't look like real puke. This looks like real puke. Yeah. Like whoever was in the puke effects department, <laughs> if if that were a category at the Academy Awards, puke they effects, would win. they'd win. And they'd it's sweep. not just puke; it's also poop. <laughs> yeah, so, the poop effects are also pretty impressive. So if you're somebody that's like really grossed out by that, and then there is also a sense of like seasickness that's evoked by the way the film is shot. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole sequence in the movie 
where they're they're on the ship and there's a storm going on and so it's rocking the boat but the camera is also rocking back and forth for a long sequence in the middle of the film and it by the end of it i mean it created a very visceral experience for me like i was feeling kind of seasick we we went and saw it with our buddy ashley and she said even like she gagged a couple times <laughs> and i heard like a really audible gag from like a wh- oh yeah like from somebody else in the theater further away from us and they were like at the front of the theater and we were at the back and I heard just like this. You <laughs> Interestingly, I didn't feel sick. And I think it's because I was very prepared for it. Like I if you watch for it and I was tra- just like, <laughs> but if you watch the trailer, you know, it's going to happen and you yeah. know when it's going to happen. It's not surprising. Right. Um, I also purposefully didn't bring bring or buy snacks. Oh, I'm like, yeah. well, I'm not going to eat during this movie. That seems like a bad idea. Yeah, we were seeing a double feature and we're like, let's get our food for the second <laughs> the movie. Second movie, <laughs> yes. But uh, there definitely were a lot of like, oh, oh, like a lot of audience groaning um, I, at the gross stuff. I had my head in my hands at some point and I, at some points and I was just like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? And I couldn't believe for how long some things were going on. All that said, I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I, I absolutely loved it. The puke and the poop or just the movie in general? Yes. Both. Okay. <laughs> so what I will say about this movie is it has really similar themes to Parasite. Yes. Which is, I'm slowly understanding that maybe I don't have a favorite movie of all time because I've seen several movies this year that I'm like, are, they're my favorite movie of all time. But Parasite is in that handful of like, it's a perfect movie to me. Yeah. And I love it so much and I could watch it again and again and I want to show it to everyone and I want to watch what they think about it right? as they see it for the first time. And it has some really similar themes to Parasite, but it just goes more absurdist, more over the top. It's much less about class dynamics and more about the like 1%, right? Yeah. And It's an excellent commentary on wealth, class, and privilege. It is, but it does it in a more absurdist way. Yeah, and I love it. I liked Parasite better. Yeah, like I th- Parasite for me is a five out of five. And you and I have had a lot of conversations about what makes films five out of five for us. Yeah, as opposed to like a 4.5 out of yeah. five. So like Triangle of Sadness is a 4.5 out of five for me. And what usually tips the scales into that five out of five is some sort of emotional resonance, something that hit that hit us in the heart and just made us feel something we weren't expecting or something a lot, a lot deeper. And I mean, this didn't do that (laughs) necessarily. It didn't, it didn't bump it into that five out of five category for me, but I still love the experience. I love the execution. I I love the story that was told here. I thought it was an, an incredible experience. One of my favorite theater experiences Something that's really interesting about it to me, though, when I compare it to to Parasite, Mm -hmm. is that you said something when we were leaving the theater. So it's it's very clear from watching the trailer, from reading the synopsis, that this is a movie about class dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, And while we won't get into the specifics of anything that happens, it's very critical of wealth and class, Mm -hmm. right? And it's exploring that through this absurdist, over-the-top, story and it's it's almost more satirical 
Yeah. Parasite is not, right? Parasite is a drama. It's focused on character. It's fo- focused on family dynamics. The audience here, you know, we're we're in Edmonton. We're in Canada. We're at a film festival. Likely a lot of people here are like middle upper class. And we're laughing at this. And yet when we were walking out of the theater, you said like you, as you watched folks having like the staff having to come in to like clean this theater that people have left disgusting and there's popcorn all over the floor and so on and so forth. And the garbage bin was so, it was too small and it was overflowed. So people just started throwing all their shit on the floor Yeah, next to the garbage bin. And so like I can see the worker physically having to like pick up all of that stuff. Everyone's thrown on the floor and like go like put it in a separate garbage bag or like crushing down that garbage bin. And yeah, you you can but what, like, what it made me wonder is, is this film going for like a Michael Haneke funny games thing where we're meant to laugh and feel uncomfortable and then afterwards be like, but oh shit, we're part of this. Yeah. Or is that not a part of the film and it's something you just felt because of the specific experience you had leaving the film? Because like there was a bit of a discomfort to me in laughing at this thing that we're we're a part of. Oh, yeah. Like, it, almost to the point of, like, because it's so outlandish and it's so over the top, and I'm going to say almost no one to no one in the theater is as rich as the people on the yacht. Yeah. We can laugh at that and then feel good about ourselves. hmm Because that probably isn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. chances are everyone in that theater is complicit in this in some way, even if we're not the rich, 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 rich people on the yacht. And the film does explore that. It explores, explores the continuum of wealth and the intricacies of that, those class dynamics and systems of privilege. Mm-hmm. But I wonder how much of the commentary on the part that like someone like you or I plays in this system is able to be forgotten because we're laughing at the super rich. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was just something that I was kind of left thinking about because I I don't know that the film explicitly tries to make its audience confront the part they play in it so much as just laugh at the system. Yeah. Well, it is an, another interesting audience moment for me too in thinking about that is there's a lot like our, our characters of Carl and Yaya, like they're younger people, they're models and they're influencers. So they're on their phones, taking pictures of themselves, eating meals and like wearing bathing suits and stuff like that throughout the, throughout the film. And anytime that they were doing that, there was a, a pair of older folks behind us, like maybe in late forties, fifties. But anytime they were doing that, they would just be like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like they, oh really? They would be like you didn't so. Tell me about this. They were so exacerbated by like watching this, and just you could you could feel the detest that they have <laughs> for the younger generation and social media and being online and having to document everything and put themselves out there. And again, that's just like another critique of the generational viewpoints on today's culture and what's relevant to some and what's not, what's to others and what's stupid to some and what's lucrative to others it's it's really interesting that the movie theater itself is kind of a microcosm of the larger culture but then the question i have is 
do people recognize that? And was that the intention of the filmmaker? I, I don't know. I feel like you have to be, I mean, maybe not, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I feel like you have to be a reflective person who doesn't throw your popcorn on the floor for the people <laughs> to pick it up at the end of the movie. But in a movie like Funny Games, you don't have to be. Yeah. Because the film makes very clear that it wants to confront you, the viewer, with something. Yeah, it like talks right to you yeah. about it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, know. it was kind of a, that was kind of a thing that I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that it did that. Like, yeah. I, I, I love that it kind of forced us to confront that and sit in that discomfort and be thoughtful about it. I think that that, I mean, for me, that worked for me. And that's what makes the film resonate for me, even a week after we've we watched it. It was our first uh, film from Ruben Os- Osland that we've seen. Yeah, his film The Square also won the Palme d'Or. Oh, and did it? It did. And we um we were talking with a friend like a week ago mm-hmm. who has seen that and Force Majeure and mm-hmm. was like, if you have a chance, try and see The Square first. <laughs> first, and I'm like, we don't have a chance. We don't have an opportunity <laughs> yeah. to do that because he had already seen Triangle of Sadness. Um, but it this did make me really excited to go and watch his other films, mm-hmm. which is a theme throughout this week where I'm like, oh, I like this director. So, yeah, I, I I definitely recommend seeing this. Yeah. I mean, a few just like a couple extra things that I was reflecting on. I mean, like this this film is chock full of unsympathetic characters like there's. It, but they're not all unsympathetic and some of them change and grow throughout the story in ways that some of them I really loved. Some of it, it was a little bit despicable, but they're, they're all extremely well acted. Like everybody leaned in hard on all of their, all of the characters they were playing. Mm-hmm. It also made me think about the like Palm Door uh, award winners. Cause I kind of went back in the list and it seems like Palm Door winners, both present and past, have just, and we were kind of talking about this later in the week with um, Vincent, one of the programmers at IFE. Art director. Art director, sorry, uh, for IFE. And it seems like they always have some sort of fucked up twist to them. Like some, some like last year's winner was, um, I say Titan, because I'm terrible with French. Titan. Titan. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like that has some very fucked upness to it. And, previous ones were also parasite which has a bit of that and and handmaiden so yeah it was just like very interesting going back and looking through previous winners of the palm door um yeah overall this i think this is a pretty unforgettable experience and a pretty effective film and uh i want to see it again uh maybe when it gets a large release we'll take people who haven't seen it that's very soon it's wide releases on october 7th oh perfect so this episode comes out on October 6th. Go see it tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> Triangle Sadness. Check it out tomorrow. Be prepared for puke. Be prepared for poop, but have a good time. Pukey pee pee. Poop poo. Okay. How did it make you feel? Honestly, it just like left me flabbergasted. This was one of those movies where like my mouth was a jar pretty much the whole movie. I was like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. Are you kidding me? Like, there's very few movies where I look over at you and I'm just like a gape. Just like, yeah, <laughs> that was kind of just the 
entire film encapsulated literally from start to finish. Yeah. With no relenting. <laughs> yeah. And I really enjoyed that. Yes. How about you? Uh, I was totally enthralled. I was engaged. I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, it made me curious about Ruben Ostlin's other work, uh, specifically The Square, that I really want to see. Yeah, I was swept up in all of it. And it was it was great. Nice. Nice. So that was when we saw Triangle of Sadness. We saw it at 4.30 on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Two and a half hour movie. We had a very brief half hour break and then went and watched another two and a half hour movie. Mm-hmm. And that movie was Decision to Leave. I have to I have to say though, for watching two movies. <laughs> and you don't interrupt people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the middle of getting an ADHD diagnosis. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're trying to find a lot of moments in my life where I'm fitting the ADHD criteria. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot claims he only interrupts people sometimes, but I think he does it very often. Don't say that. Now the <laughs> listeners are gonna be like, oh then the ADHD boy. There he goes again. <laughs> Interrupting. <laughs> um for a Sunday night, going to see back-to-back two-and-a-half-hour movies, it really took away the Sunday scaries feeling for me. I was just, like, so excited to be watching movies. <laughs> Honestly, by Tuesday, it felt like it should have been Friday because we'd seen so many movies. <laughs> I was like, why do I still have days left in my work week? Yeah. This is wild. Um, anyway, okay. I'm yeah. going to take it back to the beginning of uh, what I was saying. <laughs> so we went and saw Decision to Leave. Obviously, a 2022 movie. Uh, it is a crime mystery drama, and it's the new film by Park Chan-wook. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was written by him, as well as Si Kyung Jung, and it stars Tong Wei as Su Rei and Park Hai Il as Hai Jun. Um, and there's some other people in there, but it's really, really the two of them mm-hmm. for most of the film. Mm-hmm. So a synopsis for this one is a detective investigating a man's death in the mountains meets the dead man's mysterious wife in the course of his dogged sleuthing. What do you think of this movie? So I actually, I don't have a lot of thoughts on this movie. (laughs) Great way to start the conversation. What do you think? I don't have a lot of thoughts. But I don't. I would. I don't want to downplay the craft that has gone into this movie because that's the thing that kind of has resonated with me the most about this film is like the the film itself is beautiful mm-hmm. and it is the camera work in it is amazing it has a very kinetic feel mm-hmm. um but it just at the core of it it didn't hit on a deep emotional level for me like there was nothing in it that was like tugging heartstrings or making me really invested in our in our main characters other than they were beautiful people like it, it just wasn't a story for me it is compelling. Yeah. Like, like I wanted to know what was going to happen. I agree. But then once it was over, I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was a good movie. It was a well-made movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably not going to revisit it. So it was interesting because we watched Old Boy, which is probably a movie that even if people don't know that like Park Chan-wook made it, they probably know of Old Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, not the crappy American version. Like... The original version. <laughs> yeah. We watched that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I liked it a lot. Yeah. I would like to revisit it. I don't remember it feeling that fucked up to me. Right. And if I'm remembering this correctly, 
it was my birthday and we went to movie studio and I just wanted to rent messed up movies. And I'm fairly certain we rented Funny Games, Old Boy, Martyrs, the original version. So all of these as the original versions and then Short Bus. Right. And then watched them all in quick succession. Mm -hmm. And people also say Martyrs is like a movie that like upset them the most of everything. And I don't remember feeling that way about it. But I'm like, is it just because we watched too many of them in a row? Maybe. I've been wanting to revisit Martyrs for a while. Yeah, I want to revisit both of those. But I, I do remember really liking Old Boy. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited about Handmaiden, and it took us a long time to watch it. Another Park Chan-wook film, and that one won the Palm Door. Yeah. And I didn't really like Handmaiden. It did not stick with me No, I all. like, again, I have no desire to revisit it. Now, I do really want to watch his Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Yeah. Which I think... In my understanding, are kind of old boy slash neo noir, which this is more like that femme fatale neo noir, but modernized. Yeah. But I also think that genre of film is not one that I'm super interested in, like neo noir femme fatale. So after watch, I really I liked it, and I really enjoyed the process of watching it, and I thought it was really beautiful. And then I was, you know, doing my thing where I go on Letterbox and I go on Reddit and I look at trivia and I find interviews and stuff. And I saw some people comparing it to Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Even Vincent compared it to Gone Girl. Well, I did first. Oh, did you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I hate Gone Girl with a passion. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, again, it's another film that's beautifully executed. Oh, yeah. Well acted, well made. No, nothing against the craft of the film. I read the book Gone Girl before I ever saw the movie. And I was in my uh, first or second year of gender studies, so I was really mm. encountering feminism as a concept for the first time academically. Yeah, yeah. And I just felt like Gone Girl took every single thing that men fear women might do to them and, like, put it on display. And I, I, I had a problem with that. I don't know. I just... The politics of Gone Girl don't sit right with me. Yeah, um, I agree. And then when I heard this film compared to that, I was like, oh, kind of does have some like similar things that like when you look at it from a political lens, maybe aren't it isn't saying the best things. Yeah. I think this is saying it much more subtly. Yeah. Much more interestingly. Yes. I mean, this would be the um, if you were to compare those films Gone Girl's Triangle of Sadness. And this is uh, Parasite, right? In terms of like, one is much more subtle, much more intricate, and honestly, much more complex. Mm-hmm. And the other is just like over the top in your face, right? Like, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm, when I sat with it a little bit more, I was like, oh, I enjoyed the film. I thought it was beautiful. But in retrospect, actually, what happens in the film, I'm not sure that like I, I like that. Yeah. And I felt the same way about Handmaiden, mm-hmm. where I was like, mm. Hmm. Yeah. And yet I'm not invested enough to really dig into that and make a good case for it. Yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at too. Like I didn't like it enough to want to like super deep dive to like dig through everything that it has to offer and see if there's a deeper meaning or try to assign deeper meaning to th- or to reckon stuff. with the perhaps dangerous implications of some of its messaging yeah like i just i'm like eh. but all that being said it's a beautiful film it's well made i enjoyed the process of watching it 
it does some cool camera work stuff that like I've, I we had some conversations later in the week that people were talking about and how much they liked it. But honestly, I just thought Hannibal did it. Hannibal did it first and Hannibal did it better. Yeah. Like the TV, like Brian Fuller's Hannibal. Which if you haven't seen it, oh, you got to watch it. It's October now. Get into Great it. Great series to watch for October. Not to dismiss like how fantastic of a filmmaker Park Chan-wook is because I think he, I think he's very accomplished and I'm very interested. I will see every film he makes, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially like the new ones as they come out. But there was something about this film that just didn't land for for me personally. At the same time, I'm seeing lots of people who say it's their favorite thing that they saw at like this film fest or Calgary Film Fest or uh, TIFF. You know, like it's it's a lot of people's favorite. So it might just be a matter of personal taste. Yeah. And that's totally cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that the thing that I always take away, with the exception of Handmaiden, that I've taken away from... Park Chan-wook's films is just some of the visual choices. Mm. I mean, the hallway scene in Old Boy is iconic mm-hmm. and has influenced so many scenes that have come after it in other pieces of media. And then in this too, like that's that's my main takeaway. It's just some of the camera work and some of the composition and the way he's framed his characters to yeah. tell to tell the story. That's what's that's what stuck with me. And the way he plays with setting and silence and yeah. He's such an accomplished filmmaker and I, you know, for, for what we're saying about it, I gave it four out of five. Yeah, same. I just, it's just not one I'm compelled to revisit. I really enjoyed watching it, but it was a one-time thing for me. I agree. Um, how did it make you feel? Um, yeah, it just made me feel swept up in the camera work and not the story so much. Mm. Um, and yeah, like I think in terms of camera work, five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> story. Yeah, four out of five. Which is still really good. Yeah, like it's it's not a bad movie. It just, for me, just didn't hit on that deeper level that I like film, specifically dramas to hit on. And Well, this is a difficult thing too about going to a film fest and choosing what you want to see. These are films competing against the best. So, you know, we yeah. saw four films at film fest um, and, and a fifth that we had already seen before, so we're not going to talk about we, we went and saw butterfly in the sky again which we talked about a couple episodes back and we loved but you know we saw these four new films and they're all amazing but decision to leave was the one i liked the least yes i agree it was for me personally the worst of the best <laughs> so yeah. it just sucks for decision to leave if i wasn't seeing it in a week where i was seeing so many other phenomenal films mm-hmm. i might have enjoyed it even more but as it stands, I was incredibly engaged, but that engagement didn't last after the film. Yeah. It didn't stick. Mm-hmm. Oh. Man, yeah. we're good movie partners. We just like see eye to eye on most of the stuff. Most of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like we both love Mission Impossible. Oh, yeah. We, and we both love Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So midweek, we took a little break from IFE and went back to our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, for the 100th anniversary screening of Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, it's a 1922 fantasy horror, which is kind of nuts to say. Yep. Um, it was directed by F.W. Murnau and written by Henrik Galeen, and it's based off the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. 
Uh, it stars Max Schreck in the iconic role of Graf Orlock, Alexander Granich as Nock, Gustav von Wregenheim as Hooter, and Greta Schroeder as Ellen. You're really trying to channel your German background there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Is that no? Is that German? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think I have any German in my family. Let me Russian. Uh, sorry. Anyway, um, so the synopsis is: Vampire Count Orlock expresses interest in a new residence and real estate agent Hooter's wife. Ooh, don't, don't, don't. Ooh I like. Um, so yeah, like I said, Metro was screening this for its 100th anniversary, and it was. I did not expect it to be as busy in the theater as it was. It had a really great turnout. And they had, they actually had an organ player playing music. We missed it before that one, but they were showing Werner Herzog's version of Nosferatu afterward. And so we got a little bit of the organ player playing after the film, which is like a really cool touch and really, yeah. really cool. I love when there's these additional things that they add to the screenings. And it was really amazing to see such a full theater because i wasn't expecting that yeah uh, i love it the the programming at metro is has been just so on point and it's attracting a lot of audience a lot more fuller audiences than we may have previously seen which is really nice to see but it's also really taking up our life like if you guys could just like step it back a little bit so we don't drive half an hour to the movies five times a week that way <laughs> well we also did it to ourselves buying the silver screen pass because where we you know it's a uh, i think we've talked about it but it's a pass where you pay a one-time fee for the year and then you can go see as many movies as you want i think if we were paying movie to movie we'd be more selective but since we've already paid for the the pass for the year we're just like oh we kind of want to see this let's, let's just go, go. Yeah. yeah um but also the programming has been killer so good oh so good so this is just a classic horror movie that neither of us have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, we've seen it referenced as horror fans. We've seen it referenced and talked about in so many different pieces of media. Seen clips and stills from it, but yeah. never it entirely. Yeah. So what do you think of Nosferatu? This was so interesting. Yeah. Because I think it's probably safe to say this is the oldest movie I've now ever seen. Yeah, same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Probably prior to that, it would have been Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Like, we don't watch a lot of pre-1960 movies, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Seen a few here and there, but not many. Probably the one I've watched, Wizard of Oz and Freaks are probably the two old movies I've watched the most. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, this is my first silent film. Same. Never seen course. a silent film before. Of course, know what they are, but yeah. I had never seen one. Um. I struggle with older stuff. How come? I'm not a fan of things that are over the top. And by the very nature of silent film, you kind of need to be bigger yeah. than you would. Other. There, there, you need to downplay the subtlety. And it also tends to be a bit like for, for silent film. What I noticed in this is it was really repetitive. Like we would be like, it'd be the same motion or the same image for like quite a while before we got the title card with like the um, like dialogue written on it. And I was like, okay, yeah. just get to the, di-. like I wanted to watch this at like two times speed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. like, I mean the, the product of silent films is that you have 
intertitles. So yeah. it's, it's cards in between that have dialogue or backstory or plot that is just spelled out on the screen and stylized on the screen. And yeah, they would repeat, they would repeat certain pieces over and over again. Man, if you hate subtitles, you're going to hate intertitles. But th- so this was the interesting thing to me. I loved the intertitles. Like I loved them. But what you've basically done is, is you've split dialogue and visuals. Yes. And as anyone who's listened to any of our episodes knows, I struggle with visuals. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself becoming bored when when we were in the visual portions. Not all of them. So like, how does that work for you? Like, do you kind of hang on to whatever the last visual was that you saw and then read the thing? Or is it totally like day and night? Like you saw that visual and now it's out of your brain and now uh, you're just I saw reading. that visual and that visual kept being sustained. And then I started thinking about what I was going to cook for dinner the next day. And then, <laughs> yeah, like that's what happens. I'm just like, I'm done with this. Like I got it. I saw the visual. Okay. Right. Um, not, not consistently, mm-hmm. but that was, that was tough for me just with who I am as a person. Um, but I love the intertitles. <laughs> like the, some of that mm-hmm. writing <laughs> was really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked the, they have a couple moments where you like see the vampire, like this book about vampires. And so it's, it is kind of like an intertitle, but it's not dialogue. It's like something that the characters are reading. Um, mm. And I liked those and they do repeat them, but I thought they repeated them in really clever ways. In seeing this, I understand why it's so influential mm-hmm. and the story of it is so interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to surprise you with this story and then we were literally the, the very next day we watched um, something we're going to talk about later, which told the whole story and neither of us knew that that was going to be in there. So this is a film that like, it's literally a miracle that any of us are able to watch it. Yeah. This is so cool. I love this so much. Because, and, and you know, if, if any of you are Nosferatu fans, you probably know this story, but if you don't, it is so fascinating. So Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, F.W. Murnau, like, Foley just was like, this is an unauthorized version of Dracula. I changed a couple names. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was doing. So Florence Stoker, Bram Stoker's wife, went on a campaign to destroy Nosferatu. So I have this. This is from a Den of Geek article written by David Crow. I just have this little snippet. So he wrote, Florence, Florence Stoker was unaware throughout the development and production of Nosferatu of the film's existence. In fact, it only came to her attention in April 1922 when a mysterious and unmarked letter was sent to her with a program from Nosferatu's March premiere. It included the remarkably brazen admission that the movie was, quote, freely adapted from Dracula. She quickly joined the British Incorporated Society of Authors and fatefully mailed one G. Herbert Thring a, co- a copy of that program. She wanted justice and money. As detailed in David J. Skull's other book about the undead count, Hollywood Gothic, The Tangled Web of Dracula from novel to stage to screen, Florence's war on the film and anyone who attempted to distribute it was an unholy odyssey. Mm-hmm. And so basically she was able to successfully make it so that every copy of the film had to be burned. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's been recovered and restored and it seems like in pieces, like they've had to pick it back together from like what managed to survive this scourge of the burning of Nosferatu, mm-hmm. like a vampire itself, it's risen from the ashes. Mm-hmm. The fact that that exists is miraculous and phenomenal. And that like a hundred years later, 
this nearly full audience is sitting together watching this film that's not meant to exist because it was supposed to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed. I, I love that so much. Like there's just so much at play there universally of like this needed to be seen. And so the universe was like, there's going to be people throughout history that, you know, we'll take the one remaining print and little bits here and there to try to like piece this movie back Restore together. Restore it. And, and and do and there was even a little blur before the film started just kind of documentary documenting the things that were done to get to the version that we're seeing today. Yeah, and 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 acknowledging that it's not necessarily perfectly what the original film was. And it's my understanding that the original score has been lost. Mm. Like so originally this would have been played live. Which some places are doing that for the 100th anniversary or having like live symphonies. Oh my goodness, that would be phenomenal. That'd be the ultimate. Because yeah. it was, yeah, it was wild. You know, we talked about this already just personally, but I think I just like hated Hutter or Hooter. Yeah. I didn't care about him. No. Like he, he's a fool. Yeah. And he's just, he's the slapstick. He's like the Three Stooges and he's, you you know, and perhaps the listeners know that like I don't really like over the top slapstick humor, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what Hooter is. There's moments that are like funny with him, but I like I got sick of it really really quickly. I was so much more interested in the character of Ellen and how she like senses Orlock even before he's like in her village, and I wish that it had just been from her perspective. I wish the whole her, film had been from her perspective because her performance was. Also awesome. Yeah. Like every time we were with her or every time we were with Orlok, I really liked the film. Yeah. But every time we were with Hooter, I was like, I don't care. And the disappointing thing is most of the film is with him. Yeah. Like Nosferatu, I believe, is only on screen for like eight minutes or like Orlok is only on screen for about eight minutes. And I'm sure um, Ellen about the same. Mm-hmm. So this gives me a lot of hope that Robert Eggers adap- adaptation will maybe focus on the character of Ellen. Yeah, because Anya Taylor-Joy is meant to be in it. No, she's not in it anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's Bill Skarsgård as Orlock, and it's going to be Lily Rose Depp as Ellen. She uh, apparently, there's been like difficulties in like getting to the filming process, and she has other commitments that she she had. Like, Is it the Stoker family at it again? <laughs> <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy will not be in this. <laughs> Um, okay, well, that's a little disappointing, but I mean, you know, we'll give Lily Rose a chance. I just, you know, in Eggers, we trust. Yeah, in Eggers, we trust. Um, but I mean, I I agree with you fully about the characters, but I mean, there's only one character we all showed up for, really, and that was Count Orlock. And man, he's creepy. Those fingers. Ooh. Yeah, the like vampire stuff doesn't really do it for me. Like yeah. it. Especially from a fear perspective, yeah. But this is the this is the kind of vampire that gets to me that really freaks me out is the long, grotesque fingers, the like really jagged, creepy teeth, and just like wide eyes, exaggerated ears and nose, like and like no hair, like bald, <laughs> like kind of like um, what's his what's his name. <laughs> The one, uh, the one that looks like that in what we do in the shadows. Oh, I think he's just called the Count or something, or the Baron. No, in the uh, in the movie, Peter, <laughs> the one that's in the basement. 
I don't remember, but I'm sure that's true. Or like the vampire from Salem's Lot. Yes, um, which are clearly directly referencing yeah. Nosferatu. But that those are the kinds of vampires that really give me the chilly willies. Not Edward Cullen? No. <laughs> what? He gives me different chilly willies. <laughs> oh. Well, Robert Pattinson. Um, something, I mean, I mean, his look is iconic. Mm-hmm. And it's some of the shots that they get of him. If I were watching this in 1922, would probably scare the shit out of me. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And they've been indelible images. I think that was the tricky thing. So you've never seen Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And I feel like it's going to be challenging for you when you do eventually watch it because you've seen everything scenes. about it. Yeah, yeah you've seen scenes, I know the images. Twist. And so I think some of that was at play in Nosferatu where like we've seen the best scenes, we've seen the best images and then all the stuff in between, there's a reason we haven't seen it because it's not as compelling as some of the other things, right? So, yeah. There's that part of me that wishes I had seen it before I knew anything about it mm-hmm. and had just allowed, been allowed to experience those things as... um like indelible time. marks in my life. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, As yeah. opposed to, oh, well, I've seen it in this film, in this documentary. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I'm also not really a vampire person aside from what we do in the shadows and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But I have to say, you actually brought this up. It was surprisingly funny. Yeah. And purposefully so. Yeah. Like there's times where it's clearly meant to be funny. There's a scene of Orlok. <laughs> carrying his coffin oh so good and i think you can draw a straight line from that to what we do in the shadows yeah like that set the parts of it that are humorous are actually humorous in a very similar way to what we do in the shadows and then the parts of it that are scary are quite scary yeah and i appreciate that so much about the film you know you think of something it it made me think of the the movie scream which we like a lot in that it is. It has a lot of really funny stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's hilarious. But it also is really frightening. Yeah. And I I appreciate so much that in 1922, they weren't like, let's just bury this in darkness and make this really haunting and serious and scary. They made it a well-rounded experience for audiences. Mm-hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised about that. You heard it here, folks. F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu and Wes Craven's Scream. Two sides of the same coin. Pretty much. Um, I, while I, yeah, I didn't love this movie. It, I, I'm with you on the silent film part of it, but it, it is, uh, it is such an integral piece to the horror puzzle that I'm so glad that we finally got to see it. What'd you think of Nosferatu? Yeah, same thing. I, you know, it, it didn't. Did I say, what, what'd you think? How did it make you feel? How did it make me feel? It made me feel very grateful to see this piece of influential film and horror film history, even though that time, like that time period of film doesn't quite resonate with me the way it does with other folks. I'm so, so grateful to have seen it. So grateful to have seen it in a theater theater with a big audience where we laughed together and experienced it together. It was, it was really lovely. Yeah. I think that I'm, I'm really grateful for the circumstances of which we got to see it mm-hmm. uh, at Metro um, for the hundredth anniversary. That you know that we're kind of marking that milestone. Um, and with, I'm go ahead. 
I'm nope. interrupting. No, nope. no, nope. go for it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm grateful that this film that isn't supposed to exist exists. Yeah. And that we were able to see it a hundred years later. Like that's, and that it is so influential that it is still being screened to sold out audiences a hundred years after it was made. That's mm-hmm. so cool. Yeah. I, I have something akin to that here too. And I also just feel a, accomplished. Um, like I feel like an accomplished horror fan for checking another big film off the list of influential horror films. Um, In the theater, no less. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Take us back to Ife. All right. We've got two more Ife movies and then we're out of here, <laughs> but these are biggies. <laughs> these are biggies. Um, so we went and saw the 2022 film Broker. It's a drama. It's a new film from director and writer Hirokazu Koreeda. Um, he's a Japanese filmmaker, but this is his first South Korean film, mm. which is really interesting. Um, it stars the incomparable Song Kang-ho. So, you know, from Parasite and The Host and Memories of Murder. Memories of, Memories of Murder. He's yeah. just the best. Um, and he plays the character Sang Hwan. Uh, Dong Won Gong as Dong Su, Bei Duna as Soon Jin, and Ji Eun Lee as So Young. A synopsis for this, it's a really bad synopsis, but it's the one I found. Boxes that are left out for people to anonymous, anonymously drop off their unwanted babies. It's not the synopsis we wanted, but it's, it's the, the synopsis, synopsis we, we got. <laughs> it's the synopsis we deserve. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Strange synopsis. The film does begin with somebody dropping off their baby anonymously to a baby drop box. Mm-hmm. And we'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> what did you think of Broker? Going into it, I was just from the things I'd heard about it, and I hadn't heard a lot. And we purposefully, for this film and our next film, we purposefully um, opted not to watch trailers or look up anything. Like, I think you saw a little bit more than I did. I saw that sweet synopsis. Um, I had not, so I did not know what we were getting into. But from what I had heard and, well, from what Vincent had been saying, I was ready to be hit in the heart by this one. And this one hit me right in the stupid heart. Um, so the first thing, like, Hirokazu loves telling stories about chosen family. And you know what? If you have a thing that you're really good at, because he also made a film that we reviewed on the show earlier this year called shoplifters uh, with a similar kind of theme. But if you're really good at something and you're good at telling those stories, just run it into the ground, man. Well, I think he's obviously compelled to think about this and it is something I'm compelled to think about too. You and I, I mean, I think one of the concepts and impulses behind bad dad, rad dad as, as the concept is choosing your dad's right mm-hmm. choosing where you get that paternal ex- like connection from and you and I are are just like suckers for chosen family because I consider yeah. you chosen family and and consider our baby boy Thompson chosen family and yeah. all of our friggin amazing friends that we're so lucky to have who showed up to our uh to support us at butterfly in the sky as chosen family and so th- these things just get me yeah i agree it hits right in the heart um yeah this film is beautiful i in my notes i have the word beautiful and then i have a list of the things that are beautiful tell me uh i mean it's beautifully shot like there 
there are some moments throughout the film, again, just visually, that are going to stick with me. There's this one scene that is pretty inconsequential to the larger plot of the film, but it's just this woman sitting in her car while it's raining, and then she rolls down the window, and it's shot from outside, and it's a bit of a... It's like this really weird blend of like a wide, medium shot. She rolls down her window, and there's a little flower that's landed... Mm-hmm. on on the window and gotten stuck to the window uh in the water that's running down the window and then she just reaches her finger through just a slightly cracked window and just starts trying to grab at the flower while she's talking on the phone and it that that's just such that felt like such a real beautiful moment because when you're talking on the phone you're just kind of not thinking about what you're doing and it just makes me think about you know, when you're a kid and I i mean, when I used to talk on the phone as a kid, you'd be like doodling or you'd be playing with like something that's around you and just not really thinking about what you're doing. But that was just such a beautiful, well shot, well executed uh, scene. And it, it's its just going to stick with me of how human it was. Mm. Yeah, his, I mean, so we've only seen two of his movies but after seeing them both and loving them so much, I'm like, I think I got to see all of them. Yeah. Does he have a lot? I didn't yes, know. Yes, he has a lot. Really? Yeah. Um, I, I want to say like at least 10. Oh, wow. Um, but he, I think human is such a great way to describe this film and the film we're going to talk about after. Mm-hmm. And although I like to say that horror is my favorite genre, and it is, what supersedes horror for me are these films that are just deeply human. Mm-hmm. Like my top, top, top tier movies are those ones that just, they're kind of movies that it's like nothing happens but the vibes. Mm-hmm. And they're deeply emotional. And I know those movies aren't for everyone. Like I, there's been a couple movies that like folks have watched on our recommendation and not liked um, <laughs> yeah. that tend to have this vibe to them. But I love it. And I'm like, I just, knowing, having seen Shoplifters and then seen this, I'm like, I'm probably going to like everything he does because there's a, an aesthetic thematic and tonal consistency between those two films that makes me think it likely runs through his catalog. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't wait to look into more of them. It. I'm just going to finish up my list of beautiful. Oh, sorry. Okay. If that's okay. Yes. Um, My next, my next thing was is is beautifully acted. The, the performances in this are incredible. And the and then the the last thing in my in my list of beautiful is the music. Like I feel like the music overall is very gentle. It's understated, and it actually kind of gave me a bit in some moments. It gave me a bit of like the drive my car soundtrack vibe a little bit, like just in its tenderness that it has, which I which I really liked. I'm a big fan of. Thus concludes my list of beautiful things. I'm sure there's more, but <laughs> um, yeah. On top of it being beautiful, it's also really funny. Yeah, a lot of really great humor. And really sweet and really complex and really sad. Yeah, there's some lines in this that just, they're so, there's one scene in particular where the lines are so nice that it just hits so hard. And I've said this before, if something is just incredibly nice, I'm probably crying. Yeah, there was, I actually, um, I reposted this on their stories to somebody that went and saw it I think yesterday was in the theater with us, Hmm. posted a photo 
and then use that line I think you're thinking of and said, this is going to be my new favorite way to say I love you. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, oh, just thinking about it gets me mm-hmm. emotional. It's And, you know, so something I really liked about this film and the film we're going to talk about next and that I love in films, some of my, most of my, like, favorite, favorite films are they don't wrap everything up with a neat little bow. Like there's a degree to which the ending is left for you to interpret. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a feelings-based ending. Shocking that we like that. (laughs) Um, Those are my favorite kinds of endings in all media, like in literature as well. Like I, I often say to my students, I don't need the legally blonde ending where it's like, and then this happened to this character, and then this happened to this character, and it's just their picture with like a bunch of text underneath. Like, I don't need that ending. I want to be left with a feeling and a visual that I can bring into my body and have it connect with me in its own way. And I sometimes find it just so wild, the instantaneous need by some folks to, like, immediately be like, but what happened? And I heard that in the lobby after this film and the next one, like people trying to like figure out what happened in it. And I'm like, well, and frustrated, Lisa. Yeah, exactly. Like angry about it. And I'm like, well, I, I have my own interpretation of what happened. And if you have one that's that you have, that's cool, too. Mm-hmm. First of all, I absolutely appreciate that in the pantheon of films that have those kinds of endings that legally blonde is your go-to for it. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly say that when I'm teaching so much. I'm like, <laughs> I get it's not a legally blonde ending and like students have no idea what I'm talking about. What's what? another version of that? Oh man, there's so many. I mean like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh yeah, I'm sure my students have seen that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that thing you do. Oh, that's true. Yep. Um, but again, who of your students have seen, seen that, that thing, thing you, you do? do? I'll do a poll on on Monday. Um, no, I'm I'm with you. I just I feel you know we're living in an MCU world right now where everything is buttoned very nicely for audiences in mainstream movies and media. So when a movie entrusts its audience with coming up with their own interpretation and thinking about and having to reflect on the film and not giving it this nice bow at the very end. I feel like the immediate emotion for so many moviegoers is just frustration at Mm -hmm. now they have to do work. They don't want to have to do work. They came to the movie to escape or they came to the movie to not have to think or whatever it may be. Um, and And maybe I'm painting this with a broad brush, but I just felt a lot of that in this and the next movie of just like, well, what even then? (laughs) I think it's, these are films that ask people to sit in their discomfort, Mm -hmm. like to sit with the unknown, to sit with the unresolved. I think it's a natural human instinct to not want to do that. I don't like it. So I don't like it. And so I don't like, you're being a little bit harsh on people who feel that way. And I actually, (laughs) you are. Yeah. I I feel you are. Yeah. I'm going to right now. Um, so two films that I've started teaching in grade 11, I've started teaching Minari, uh, Lee Isaac Chung's movie. I think that came out in 2020, 2019. I don't know. It's very new. Mm-hmm. And then in, in, in grade 12, I'm teaching sound of metal. Um, You're so cool. <laughs> those <laughs> are so you. good. But both of those have endings like this. Mm-hmm. And I anticipate that my students are going to feel that way. Yeah. And when you have a classroom of 20 to 30, 35 
students and they all feel that way, it very quickly can turn into a frustration hive Mm -hmm. or a negativity hive. And so I pre-prep them by saying, this film is going to end abruptly. Mm. I don't want you guys to start talking. I want you to take a second and breathe and sit with what you just saw and think about what it means to you. And think about why the filmmaker chose to end the film in that way. When I pre-prep them with that, they actually tend to really like those endings and say, oh, you know what? My impulse is to dislike that ending. But now that I'm sitting with it and thinking about what that ending does. And what I often say to them is we don't need the Legally Blonde ending. This is where it comes into my teaching. Mm -hmm. I say because we know what we know what's going to happen with Ruben after this film. Maybe not the specifics of it but we know where his emotional journey is going. Yes. And same with the family in Minari. We know what their future looks like in broad strokes. Mm-hmm. I say, do we need the rest? Yeah. Do we need to know exactly where this person goes after this and everything that happens to them? I say, no, if, if, if a movie is about an arc, mm-hmm. then to just feel confident that we know where it emotionally goes after this. I think is appropriate. So maybe that would be my recommendation. Not, yeah. I don't want to say rad wreck because we've got one we want to talk about later, but our midpoint wreck um, to people who d- maybe do, who are listening, who can feel a little frustrated by those to sit, to pause, to breathe, to let that last image, that last sound, that score kind of wash over you and like sit in that lack of resolution although sometimes it is resolved, but we feel like it's not sit in that discomfort or that frustration. And then think about what emotion that is and what it means to you personally. And then push that outward into why do you think the filmmaker chose to end it in that way? That is so well put. And I I mean, I have to give this lesson very (laughs) often, but yes, thank you. But you know, as something we've, We've preached a lot on this show. That's what the credits are for. That is 100% what the credits are for. To let those feelings start to settle in you. And you can st- you can transition from the film back into reality and you can process your thoughts. And it's okay if you don't have all of your thoughts processed or all of your feelings processed by the end of the credits. But give yourself time to do so. However much time that is. And I would say if you know, if you do, if you sit with it, and you take that breath and you feel that feeling and you still feel frustrated, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Because you took the time to try and think about how you felt. I think that's just a good lesson for life. It's really <laughs> yeah. hard to sit with lack of resolution, with frustration, with annoyance, without answers, mm-hmm. and not just want to like lash out in some way. And I think that films can kind of teach us that patience of like, Okay, mm-hmm. what does this other per- what is this other person trying to communicate to me? Mm-hmm. This filmmaker, what are they trying to communicate to me? And can I sit with my own feelings for a second to try and access and accept what they're trying to communicate to me? Mm-hmm. Then, if afterwards it still doesn't make sense, or I still don't like it, or I still feel frustrated, or I still feel angry, that's fair because at least I took the time to sit with that. Yeah, yeah, I feel, I feel especially at a film festival where you're not, you're kind of surrounded by a lot of, I'll say cinephiles and film fans. We're movie people. Yeah. Where, you know, everybody kind of wants to share 
their hot take of the of the film but uh, again like i think that there we need to afford each other the patience to mm. you know maybe maybe somebody's not ready to do that and you know maybe you don't need to immediately leave the cinema and engage in the conversation the kind of conversations we have on this show mm -hmm. that's why i really love you know we save all of this stuff the majority of it until the end of the week when we've had time to process everything and yeah i, I think we're big proponents both of us of just kind of reflecting and thinking about the intention of the art and the people behind the art and what what it said and how how it's resonated with us the more time that we've put between it and uh and talking about it so this is making me really 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 want to talk about our next film and this is such a like i talked about with decision to leave a bit of a sadness to broker because broker finished and i was like that's one of my favorite films i've ever seen in my life it's a five out of five mm -hmm. i cried multiple times if mm -hmm. i cry it's probably gonna be one of my favorite movies mm -hmm. But the movie that came next, I liked even better. Mm -hmm. And so if I'd seen these in different weeks from each other, they might shine a little bit more on their own. Broker is so phenomenal. I can't wait to watch it again. It is a five out of five. It's one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. But the next one's just a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Personally. Yeah. So before we move into talking about this last film, which I can't wait to talk about, how did Broker make you feel? Uh, it made me really, it made me reflective on life, um, both its highs and its lows, but it also made me really reflective on just how the, like the idea of capitalism and how it can make the, it, it can really make the good things people want to do look bad. Mm. And that notion hit really heavy for me and stuck with me after the film of, our heroes are of the film are people that we we understand that they're complicated people, but there is good in their hearts, whether they're thinking about themselves or thinking about others. There's good there. But the idea of capitalism has painted them a different color that doesn't make them traditional heroes. And the reality of capitalism, not just the idea of it. Yeah, right? yeah no, exactly. Um, so I'm still kind of grappling with that. Yeah, I I really want to watch this again. And I, I'm really curious. It like just hit me now. So I'm going to want to look into this a little bit. What the title, like if the title translates to broker in Korean. Mm -hmm. Because broker as an English title has many different meanings to it. Mm -hmm. Like it has a economic meaning. Mm -hmm. It has a like to be a broker, but also to be broken, like to be broker, like to be shattered, yeah. right? And all three of those really fit. Mm -hmm. um, this movie made me feel sweetly heartbroken. Yeah, that's great. That's a great description. We're going to move into a different kind of heartbreak next. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, this, this is definitely the freshest film. This was the last film that we attended at IFE. And I would say this is our most anticipated film yeah. of the festival. Did not disappoint. So the film was the 2022 drama After Sun. 
It was directed and written by Charlotte Wells, her first feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it stars Paul Mescal as Callum and Frankie Corio as Sophie. That's all you really need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, the synopsis for it. Sophie reflects on the shared joy and private melancholy of a holiday she took with her father 20 years earlier. Memories real and imagined fill the gaps between as she tries to reconcile the father she knew with the man that she didn't. Ah, okay. Um, when you read that synopsis, I just realized something and now I want to cry. But I can't say it because it would be a spoiler. <laughs> I'll text it in our group chat later. We... We're still pretty emotionally raw from this film and we're going to have to talk around a lot of things mm-hmm. um, to avoid spoilers. We d- This is another film we did not watch the trailer before, like I mentioned, and we recommend the same for you all if you get a chance to see that. I think it gets a wider release later in October. This is a very on-brand final film of the week because of it's a child-dad relationship so very very on brand for us okay what do you think of after sun so like you said this was the movie we were anticipating the most and i was so excited for it but i was not prepared for it and we were forewarned to bring kleenex we didn't and we didn't um yeah i <sighs> yeah well, and and to preface too, I imagine so Vincent, the director, uh, art director at IF, I imagine that, and I mean we asked it of him, but I imagine as somebody that is a part of putting together a film festival, the question they probably hate getting the most is what are the best films? Because mm-hmm. they want you to come see everything. Mm-hmm. They want you to attend as many as possible. Because they don't want everybody to like, they don't want to sell out just one movie and they don't come to anything else. Mm -hmm. So I I can imagine getting that question is frustrating and you try to, you know, answer it. He does a great job of kind of navigating that question. But uh, before each film, he comes uh, up at the front of the theater and gives a little um, preamble of thank yous and just a bit of a preamble about the film. And when he got up there, he told us they was he kind of had to fight for After Sun to be shown at the festival because it was a, a very last minute ad. They already had their program in place, but he's like, no, we need to add this film. Mm-hmm. So it's a last minute get. But he also said, he's like, you if you've been to any other films, you know, I haven't said this at all, but this is my favorite film of the festival. Mm-hmm. And he was even you could tell how emotional he was even just setting up the film. So already we're like, uh uh-oh. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd spoken about that with us a little bit one-on-one as well. Mm -hmm. And so we we knew a little bit. Um, I'm going to preface it by saying this this is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And I just saw it last night. Mm -hmm. And the more I think about it, the more I feel that way. It has the feeling of some of our favorite movies that we've watched in the past year. They didn't necessarily come out in the past year, but it has... If I was curating a collection of films that have the same feeling as this movie, I would put After Yang. I would put Petite Mama. I would put The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I'd put The Florida Project. Mm-hmm. 
I'd also put Columbus. We haven't Columbus. covered it on the show, but Columbus by Koganada as well. Yeah. And and to a degree, Broker and Shoplifters. They're a little bit more plot-based, mm-hmm. but I think they 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 vibe with that. So I'm putting that out there as as we say, this is one of our favorite movies we've ever seen. If you've seen some of the ones I just mentioned and they weren't your thing, there's a possibility that you won't feel the same way about this film as we do. Mm-hmm. This film is astoundingly beautiful from every technical standpoint. Leave the film aside, like the plot of the film and what it did for us emotionally that this is Charlotte Wells' first film, it is such a mastercrafted filmmaking. <laughs> and the acting from Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio is just unreal. The connection and chemistry that the two of them have in their father-daughter dynamic. Like, this is gold. Yeah. Um when we got when we got to the end credits, we saw it was produced by Barry Jenkins, which we didn't. Exp- I, I, I had no idea. I knew nothing about this movie going in, but let alone that Barry Jenkins produced it and fits. It does. Yeah, we could add Moonlight yeah. to Pariah. That list of things I just talked about. Yeah. Um. Yeah this this movie wrecked us. We went. And, we took our buddy Ashley to it too. Um, yeah, it, it, and not to, not to jump ahead, but it ended, um, (laughs) in one of the cutest moments you talked about it on your letterboxd review, but we kind of got to the end of the film last 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And as you said, we didn't, we were told to bring Kleenexes. We didn't bring Kleenexes, but then all of a sudden, like the seating arrangement was Ashley, you, me, and then all of a sudden you just like have a Kleenex being handed to you by Ashley and then you hand one down to me. (laughs) (laughs) She handed me two in quick succession, one for you, one for me. And what I have to say about that is I'm I'm very comfortable expressing emotions and I love a good cry, but I don't necessarily always feel comfortable crying to the level I want to cry. Especially in a theater. Exactly. Yeah. And as soon as Ashley handed me that Kleenex, it was like permission to cry as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I, I genuinely believe that's the ugliest I've cried in a theater. And I would compare it to the type of crying I've done when The Last of Us 2 was done, mm-hmm. when Six Feet Under was done, and when the book, uh, Ashley actually made this reference, um, A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, mm-hmm. which all three of us have read. Um, a hollowing cry like like I like not like brokers where I'm or everything everywhere all at once where I'm crying but I'm smiling through those tears like this was gutting it's it's the feeling of it's almost like there's something there's something so powerful inside of your body that your body just has to like force it out like and and it's not working. <laughs> no matter yeah. how much you cry, you can't get it out. Mm-hmm. But it was. I just want to come back to that again. That like that gesture of here's a Kleenex, and then me passing that on to you as like all of us having permission to cry as much as we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then it's really really hard to talk about this film without spoiling any of it, which I think is why we're jumping to right to like what the experience. our experience of the ending was. And I don't want to spoil any of it for anybody. 
Although I think it is really important to emotionally prepare someone who's going to watch this for the fact that it might be one of the most devastating things they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not. It depends on who you are because this is a very slow movie and I could see some folks being very bored by it and that is totally fair. I was a little bit bored by Nosferatu. I was a little bit bored by Decision to Leave. Other people love those movies. Mm-hmm. So I understand that not everybody would have the same connection that the three of us did, but the three of us felt very on the same plane with this. And so those last 10, 15 minutes of the movie proper were crying and then the credits start rolling. And we've seen a lot of movies obviously with each other, but also with Ashley, the three of us. And usually we're like pretty quick to kind of like look to each other and like start having a really gentle conversation. The three of us stared at the screen and kept crying and did not look at each other for the entire credits, I think aware of the fact that we all needed some individual space. Yeah. And then we didn't get out of our seats even after the lights had come on. We sat there a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And we were all still crying as we left the theater. And as we left the theater, <laughs> we ran into Vincent and he had, there was he was kind of surrounded by a group of some of the short filmmakers and some friends. And he's just like, did you get, he's like, he didn't just watch it. So he's like, did you guys like it? And we're just like, we're a little fucked up. (laughs) We're all uh, in various stages of still crying. And we, and we talked, it was so interesting because we ended up chatting for a little bit, but we were all very emotional. And these are all also people who like, you know, Vincent, we have chatted with quite a fair bit, but I don't think that I would say that we know him or he knows us on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And so there's aspects about our lives that he doesn't know this film has resonated with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he's got some folks who don't know us at all who have seen it and have seen it prior to this and are just excited to talk about the technical aspects of it. And mm-hmm. Ashley compared it to like having just had an incredibly personal hollowing or devastating or whatever experience And then like walking into a grocery store and everyone else is acting normal and you're supposed to too. I would compare that to um, our house was broken into in 2016. Trying to do anything normal, trying to go to class, trying to go back to work like was and everybody else is just acting as if life continues. Mm -hmm. That kind of a feeling, right? And so that's happening as we're having this conversation that we do really want to have, but we are so impacted on a deep visceral level by what we just saw and it is like shaking within us so then once we we got invited to go out and we were like i think we're not going to go out (laughs) um and then the three of us stood for i'm gonna say another half an hour well and i think that that was the good thing about having that initial conversation because i feel like that opened us up to having the conversation that followed but just the three of us and so we stood in uh, IF is at City Center Mall in Edmonton and it's closed at this point. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting in this like empty, dark, it's not sitting, standing in this empty, dark, eerie mall at the top of an escalator talking about some of the things we noticed from the movie. And it's it's such a movie that like because it's so emotional and it's so visual, we all notice different things. Mm-hmm. And damn, if we didn't, as one person said something, start crying again. And then another person says something and start crying again. And um, and we just kind of stood there and, and talked about it a little bit. And because the three of us, 
know each other so well and are comfortable with each other, we, we could have some of that like laughter through the tears and like make fun of ourselves a little bit. And, and then we just kept in our group chat afterwards. Oh, and this, Oh, and this, Oh, and also this. And what that tells me is that this is a film that's only going to get richer, more complex and likely more gutting on rewatches, mm-hmm. which to me is exactly the kind of film that I am so thankful exists in the world. Yeah. I, mean, oh, I just like. I mean, I think we would be. I missed to not also mention that this is an A24 movie. Yeah. Friggin' A24. Cranking Does it again. It but the film itself. Yeah. Don't want to get into too many details. Because going into it, knowing absolutely nothing was a gift in itself. Um, but throughout it, 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 it did. As soon as we saw Barry Jenkins' name and could draw that line directly to Moonlight, I think that a lot of the feelings that I had throughout the movie were similar to Moonlight, where I was kind of on edge about what, where it was going and how it was going to unfold. Um, but it gives you that feeling, yet it's quiet and reflective and t- It and almost patient. makes you second guess whether you're meant to be feeling that feeling. Yeah. Like I saw um, a conversation on Reddit where somebody said it felt simul like from the moment it started, I felt dread. Yeah. There was something about the filmmaking that felt incredibly tense and yet also so sweet and reflective. And and this film is such a um exploration of memory. Mm-hmm. And it does that visually, sonically, aesthetically, not just through the actual story. Like there are ways that it encapsulates through film what memory is like Mm -hmm. and damn if that isn't one of my favorite things too like thinking about memory and our own memories and the unreliability of memory and the viscerality of memory like it's one of my favorite things Mm -hmm. so yeah no doubt this movie would connect with me it also like you know it's frankie is the age I would have been in the year that she's that age. Mm-hmm. So it very much like I was able to connect with it based on like my personal life experience in more ways than one mm-hmm. that just made this, you know, where moonlight might have that connection for a person who is not me that like stops moonlight from connecting with me entirely the way it might with somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's what this movie was for me. Well, and the acting was so good. Like the character of Sophie played by Frankie Corio is the same age. I mean, roughly a little bit older as our niece. So I just (sighs) saw so much of our niece throughout this movie as well, which just adds a whole nother personal emotional piece to it. And also an authenticity. Like she was like an 11 year old is like, we spend a fair amount of time with our 10, just about 11 year old niece that's how she talks. That's how, like not obviously they're different people and different. Mm-hmm. Sophie's a different character than our nieces, but it felt very true to what we know of the life of an 11 year old. Yeah. And that was astounding because so often children in film are not like children in real life. They mm-hmm. become these like precocious, more mature versions of themselves for the sake of like easy watchability. Mm hmm. I just like this movie. Well, and I'm still, I'm still in it. Yeah. And as you just think of more things, like it, it's just been stewing in 
all three of us, you, me, and Ashley. And, you know, in watching the film, as it's unfolding, it's such a quiet film. And I'm so grateful for the audience that we did have. Yeah. Because there are long stretches where it's just very, the sound design is so minimal. And if anybody, nobody ruined that. Everybody was in it. Even if it was a fidgety audience, it could have like a rustly fidgety audience like we had with, um, we saw a movie that was, oh, Barbarian was a really fidgety audience that kind of sometimes distracted from the quieter moments in the film. Like I said, every IFE audience, impeccable. I want to see every movie with IFE audiences and so many IFE people stay till the end of the credits. Yeah. They are our kind of people for the most part. At the end of Broker there was applause from people at the end of the credits. (laughs) There's only five of us still in the theater, but we waited. Yeah. Some applause. Uh, um, But as I was coming up with theories of what was happening in the movie, I was very reluctant to lean over to you and be like, I wonder if this is the, because sometimes we do that with films, but I'm like, this is not the place. Yeah. I did that with don't worry, darling. Yeah. And then post seeing the movie, just the digging into it and other people's interpretations of the film because, I mean, coming out of it, I think you, Ashley, and I all kind of had very similar interpretations of what the story was. Because it is, like Broker, an ending that isn't literal. Yes. It's an emotional and visual ending. Mm-hmm. And so it is, to a degree, left up to the viewer what they connect with and what they, if if you so choose to think in that way, what you believe happened. Mm-hmm. And I've read from some people that thought this movie was boring and crap and they didn't understand the ending and it was garbage or they did. And they just the fact that it was so um, abstract in that way didn't resonate with them. But what I find is in films like that, it allows me to connect with it emotionally because I can put myself into it Mm -hmm. in a way that I can't when it's so strictly about like a character and a plot because I'm able to distance myself from that. And that's these are these characters on the screen. Mm -hmm. So after we saw this movie, some of the folks we were talking to mentioned that like it's autobiographical. But when I looked into it more, Charlotte Wells says it's not autobiographical. It's emotionally autobiographical. Mm -hmm. I am now obsessed with that term because I believe that the film is also emotionally autobiographical to me. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that what happened in this film is exactly what happened in Charlotte Wells' life. But that the emotions of it are true. And I think it's that is such a great answer and such a great term to allow your audience to do exactly what you're talking about, to allow them to take ownership over the film for and apply it to their own lives and to apply their own meaning to it. And also it it very it very well might be that the specifics that we understand happened in this film are not what happened. Mm-hmm. But it's an emotional reflection of an experience and a relationship that she had in her life. It's astounding. Yeah. If this doesn't get, I mean, it's, this is a film festival movie, so it's still, people are still hearing about it. If this doesn't get the audience and recognition it deserves, film is dead. (laughs) (laughs) And what the hell are we even doing? It is just phenomenal. How did it make you feel? So obliterated. (laughs) Same word I have. Yeah. Yep. And Ashley used the word eviscerated. Both true. 
At the same time, I felt that this film expressed thoughts, feelings, experiences that I have had that I continue to have in a way that I have not been able to verbalize. What a astounding gift Charlotte Wells offers me and people like me to be able to like show this to someone and say like, this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. How to make you feel obliterated. I loved it. And you know, I know it is still fresh, but the film itself and the experience of going to see it is going to stick with me forever. And I think because we didn't get too deep into it, we were able to successfully avoid crying talking about it today. Uh, we would be crying if we, I've, I've come pretty close a couple times. Yeah. Same. Um, I also need to add, I hadn't seen Paul Mescal in anything before, but I felt like I recognized him. Mm-hmm. And then I was reminded that he's Phoebe Bridger's partner. <laughs> yeah. And what I find so, so interestingly interesting and funny and beautiful and serendipitous is when we got in our car, you put on Nation of Language, who's one of your they're one of your favorite artists. And I said, can we listen to something else? And I said, can we listen to like Phoebe Bridgers or Julian Baker or something like that? Mm-hmm. But I said Phoebe Bridgers. And then I ended up putting on Julian Baker. And then when I, I put in our group chat with Ashley, Paul Mescal is um, Phoebe Bridgers' partner. And she said, no way. I listened to Phoebe Bridgers on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, um, but I will be I will be looking for what everyone involved in this film does next because it it is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in my life. I have nothing more to say. Yeah. Like I said, it's, I know release dates can be kind of weird and I think it's just getting a wider release later in October. As soon as you see it pop up in a theater close to you, if you have the means, please support this film. Please go out and see it. What a great treat for us that the last film that we saw at IFE was this incredible and rounded out our IFE experience so well. We loved all five movies that we saw. Triangle of Sadness, Decision to Leave, Butterfly in the Sky, Broker, and After Sun. They were all four out of fives or higher for us. But this one is special yeah, in a way that I can't quite verbalize yet. It's kind of like, you know, in Mario, when you 100% it and you get like a gold star, but then if you like 102% it, <laughs> it's like a shine, like a glimmering, yeah, sparkly gold one. star. Yep. After some is the 102%. And for us personally, it might not be for everyone. If you do see it when it comes out, send us a message and we'd love to know what you thought of it and be able to talk a little bit more in depth about mm-hmm. it. I I wrote a pretty personal review on Letterboxd, but I did put a spoiler tag on it because I couldn't talk about it the way I wanted to talk about it without speaking to some of the specifics of the film. But I'm pretty proud of that review that I wrote. It's very nice. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I'll say, I mean, I'll say it again. I cannot believe the number of four to five star reviews for films coming out in 2022 that we like, like you said at the beginning, the number of times that we've been like, this is my new favorite movie. This is my new <laughs> it's favorite It's making movie. me feel like a fraud. But if you want 
to be reminded that we don't always feel that way, check out last week's episode on Don't Worry Darling and the week before on Clerks 2. <laughs> we don't always, we don't love everything we watch, although we do try to avoid watching movies we don't think we'll like, mm-hmm. which gives the chances of us liking something at like a 3.5 or higher pretty. pretty it is way more fun talking about things that we love than it mm-hmm. is talking about stuff we don't love. Yeah, it is not fun to be upset, to like to, to just shit on something the or internet, to like be frustrated by something. The internet is already a cesspool of negativity. We're not really interested in adding to that. We like to talk about our feelings and we like to cry. Thanks for joining us with Welcome that. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about bad dads and rad dads. Hell yeah, let's do it. Who's your bad dad nominee of the week? <laughs> okay, my bad dad nominee of the week is Vicky Berlin's character of Paula from Triangle of Sadness. Which one's Paula? She's the like cruise like manager. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go on. She just has rules without reason. Yeah. And it's like toxic positivity. Yes. No personality of her own. No, her job is her personality. Even when that doesn't make sense for it to be the case anymore. <laughs> yeah. She is so tied to the system. That she like she's drank the the system's Kool Aid so hard that like it's her singular purpose to ensure everybody else does too, mm-hmm. and there's no room for flexibility, complexity, exceptions, whatsoever. And it's like her goal to get everybody else there as well. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, like mapping that onto like a family, mm-hmm. real dangerous. Yeah, that is a recipe for trauma. Yeah, that's really good. That's you really tell good. you tell me. Uh, my bad dad nominee of the week is Dimitri from Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, I was back and forth between those two. Yeah, I, I think Paul is a great choice. But, but you think Dimitri's better? <laughs> well, Dimitri, it's very, he's very selfish. He's very self-absorbed. It's all about himself. Like everyone else, even the people closest to him are very like soft focus in in waiting in the wings, you know, and he's very quick to sacrifice the needs or even the safety of others in service of his own well-being and what he wants or what he needs. He doesn't seem to have any allegiances other to himself. Mm-hmm. And if again, looking at that through the lens of family unit, I don't want a dad that's just going to like leave me in the dust. Yeah, I'm thinking of a particular scene based on what you just said where I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. And over the course of the film, there's no growth. There's no reflection. There's he he is who he is and he's never going to change. It's so tricky because like if we were nominating a film as bad dad, Triangle of Sadness (laughs) takes the cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like without a doubt, a character from that needs to be the bad dad. And I think like there's there's more options even than the just the two that we just said. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to 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 have Dimitri be it. I was brought back to a particular scene that I think makes him slightly worse of a dad than all the other bad dads in this movie. So, Dimitri, pee pee poo poo, kick rocks. Your We're, your rad dad nominee. My rad dad nominee of the week is Dong Su from Broker. The younger guy. The younger guy. I really loved him as a character. I feel I felt like he was really reflective. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, he he has a lot of personal growth throughout the film. Like I feel like he kind of has a certain outlook 
at the beginning of the film and a certain sort of life path. And then as circumstances change, that also changes for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this sort of sh- this shift in, you know, selfishness into consideration and thoughtfulness and kindness. And that's, I mean, I, I feel like that's a really great example of a dad is somebody who is willing to grow and is considerate of the people around them and how his actions are affecting them and how he can support them or be there for them. I really love that. I feel like that's dad energy that I like. Who's your nominee? Okay, so I was thinking about Dong Su and I was thinking about Sang Juan as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say Paul Mescal's Callum. Okay. Go on. I don't think you have to be perfect to be the rad dad. Mm-hmm. Is what I will start with. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have to be without fault. So when I look at the time that Sophie and Callum spend together in the film and how it's depicted, the tenderness in that, like how much he loves his daughter. It's just like undeniable and how he continually tries to like offer his daughter wisdom, kindness, love, fun, joy, even when it's really hard for him to do that. Like that that's what he's really trying to offer to her. And then even within the film, there's definitely some moments where like because of his own stuff, it veers to a degree of like, okay, buddy. But when he's doing it from the right perspective, he gives her some independence. Like he gives her a degree of independence while always being a figure that shows that he will be there should she need him. And any faults within him I don't think our faults as a dad is what I will say Mm. or things that we can hold against him. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone who would call him a bad dad for anything that happens within the film really needs to examine that. I, (laughs) I really went back and forth in my mind about making Callum rad dad. And I, cause I couldn't piece together an argument that I was happy with for him. Mm-hmm. But I think you've done it. <laughs> and your voice got real low. So I'm like, <laughs> that, that helps the case as well. Yeah. When I get really serious about it, I'm like, don't come for my nomination. Well, it's really, it is really tricky. And of course we can't talk about the entirety of the film, but I think if we name him rad dad, which I believe we're going to do, there are some people who would see the film and be like, are you out of your minds? Yeah. And I think that those people need to stop for a second. Check yourself. Yeah. And if I could speak candidly about the film and speak candidly with within that experience about my experience with my dad, which I can't because it would spoil the film in terms of like really specifics about like the the dynamic between the two of them. Mm-hmm. My dad though is somebody that most people would look at the factual 
Like, just look at the, like, literal facts of choices he made, things he did, who he was, and say he's a bad dad. Mm -hmm. And my dad did struggle with accountability and had his own demons and had his own stuff that he never worked through. But I think he was actually a pretty rad dad. Mm -hmm. And I don't think a person has to be perfect and faultless to be that. Mm -hmm. And I think to think so is dangerous. I, I kind of go back to something you said earlier where it's, it's unfortunate that we watched Broker and After Sun <laughs> in, in the, the same, same week. week. Because if we had watched them in separate weeks, I feel like Dong Su would for sure yeah. take it. But I, I'm so happy you found an, uh, an argument that I am 100% behind for Callum. So in that case, Callum from Aftersun. Be our dad. dad. I just want to speak to for a second to, um, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but you and I are people who actually are very resistant to binary thinking. And just because something is spoken about in terms that feel binary, I don't think it always means it is. So when we say bad dad and rad dad, it sounds so good and bad. Mm-hmm. And I hope that for people who listen with us and really resonate with the types of conversations we want to have about film, which we feel aren't always the conversations that are being had about film, that there's an understanding that within that is a, is a complexity that can't be easily teased apart. Mm-hmm. And that just because someone is bad dad of the week doesn't mean they're a bad person. What we're looking at is qualities in parents that we find harmful or dangerous. Mm-hmm. And just because someone's the rad, uh, the rad dad doesn't mean they're perfect and impeccable and uh, infallible. Mm-hmm. They have qualities that we think are really valuable. Well, and I think the fact that we're pitting them against each other is because I'm looking for a certain thing in a dad and you're looking for a certain thing in a dad. And we're trying to find the compromise of those dad of those dads that we're putting forward as nominee as nominees. And the more we talk about it more, the more that shifts to our needs change our desires change our you know, those shift over time. So bad dad, rad dad sounds really fun, but we like to get a little messier when we talk <laughs> yeah. about it. Gets you in the door, but, <laughs> and then we get messy and gray. <laughs> Thanks for being willing to listen to our messiness with us. Um, mm-hmm. And if one day we do a spoiler episode on after sun, be prepared for tears. We will bring tissues. We will bring tissues. Okay. Let's talk about the rad wreck. Mm-hmm. You want me to take the yeah, lead do on this? Okay. So, so excited to talk about this. We are recording this on October 1st. We it's are begun. now into one of our favorite times of the year. Fall is my favorite season. October is my favorite month other than July. Cause my birthday's then. Um, but, Forget I, yeah I'm a, I'm a, I'm a basic I'm a basic person I love Halloween I love sweaters I love when things are just a little bit chilly I love horror movies and it all comes together in October by the time this airs it'll be October sixth our rad rack is Shutter S H U D D E R the horror streaming service it's actually so good y'all yeah yeah and specifically what we want to talk about with Shutter is the documentary content that they put out. Mm -hmm. So 
we've mentioned many times before Eli Roth's History of Horror, which we have seen all the seasons of, and it sounds like it's not coming back for a fourth season. Really like that, where they look exclusively at like like a, a type of horror film. So like the history of zombies in horror, the histories of paranormal stuff in horror, the history of possession in horror. They have a new series that's airing right now called 101 Scariest Movie Moments. Is that what it's called? I think so. Oh, I should I should fact check that because it feels like that's something. Yeah, it is 101 Scariest Movie Moments, which I am loving. Mm-hmm. And we do, as a tip, fast forward. It's, if it's a film we've never seen and we don't know what happens in it, we just skip that mm-hmm. so we don't have anything spoiled for us. It's so good. It's so fun. Like It's so well put together. They also have, I believe it's, it's a documentary film called Horror Noir, mm-hmm. which it looks at the history of black horror or like implications of like racism within horror. Just like the history of the genre as it relates to black folks, which is so good. And they have a new series. It's going to be a four part series. The first episode aired yesterday, September 30th, called Queer for Fear, which looks at the history of queerness both homophobia and um, like subtextual queerness and actual like queer texts, like the whole gamut of it through this four part series. And that first episode blew me away. Yeah. It was so good. It felt like I was back in university taking a class on queer horror and I loved it and it's so well put together and it, I just, I can't say enough about it. I just love it so, so much. And they keep putting out content that's pretty great. They have other stuff that's like decently fun. Like they have a like cursed film series that we've been kind of picking our way through. And we watched the found footage phenomena, which like I have some gripes with who they chose to feature in that, but I did enjoy the documentary. But I think they're putting out really great original content that shows a love for the genre while also trying to speak to some of the like histories within the genre that we need to contend with as fans of the genre. Mm -hmm. Like they don't sugarcoat it. Something we didn't talk about in Nosferatu is the like subtextual and sometimes really blatant anti-Semitism within the character of Nosferatu. And they talk about that in the first episode of queer for fear. And they also address how Dracula as a figure is a, is a figure that represents the dangers of queerness or that Mm -hmm. can be read as a figure that represents the danger of queerness and the danger of that discourse over time. So I love that they're willing to like show the complexity of that, how you can love something and also look at sometimes the danger and implications of what's happening within it and like always just strive for it to become something new. Mm -hmm. Can't say enough about it. It's been like so fun to... And, and and complex and reflective to engage with those. And so, yeah, our, our wreck is shutter for, like, great horror movies. Even if you just get it for, like, October and then cancel it. Mm-hmm. Or, like, steal the password from a friend. But they have some great stuff on there, and, and we're really liking it. Yeah. As a horror fan, I love being able to dig deeper into what influences the stuff that I already love. So, highly recommend. A couple things I want to re-mention before... We do our little send off here. If you're interested in any of our DIY merch, the decals or the iron-ons, please send us a message um, on our social media channels. And Elliot's going to remind you of those in a sec. We're happy to get you them. Um, no cost. We'll find a way to get you get those to you. 
Also, I'm just curious for folks to let us know how you feel about us maybe being a little bit more horror focused than usual over the next month. Is that something that you're open to? Are you okay if we... Because you don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think we're going to exclusively watch horror movies, but I won't say we won't <laughs> because last year we watched thir- we watched 31 days of horror movies. We watched a horror movie or two or three every single day in October. And we really loved that. We hope that you're open to a, to a more exclusive horror focus for the next month. We kind of always have horror in what we're doing, but really highlighting that. That's not to say we won't watch things that aren't horror, though. I don't know yeah. yet. But we're, and we are not going to be doing 31 days of horror movies. No, we won't, we won't be subjecting you to that. Yeah. We also don't have the time. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. All right. Thank you so much for listening. This was a really fun week of movies and a lot of really great movies and iconic movies. Thanks to Edmonton International Film Festival again for. Yeah. And congrats to them on their programming this year and having a really great festival and just the programming was incredible. You can catch a new episode of Bad Dad, Rad Dad every Thursday. And until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad uh, also on twitter at baddadraddad you can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxd accounts uh, links for those are in the show notes and we would absolutely love you forever if you could drop us a rating review or follow on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you're listening from well, that is going to do it for these stinkies this week so until next time I'm Kylie and my dad's dead I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat but remember not all dads have to be bad.